welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show here on the Neil Haley Show as well. I'm excited to welcome program Nobel Prize nominated doctor and also best-selling author, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? And you're excited about our guest, aren't you? Wow, I'm doing great now. How are you? I'm very excited about our guest today. All right, so introduce our guest. Well, no problem. Well, you know, uh, this individual, we know we know that is an actress of film, television, uh, humanitarian. Uh, we know her uh, probably most from the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine episode. And uh, wow, so I'm very excited to welcome to the show uh, Chase Madison. Welcome to the show, Chase. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you guys. That's fantastic. So we want to just jump in right specifically right into Chris's first question. Oh, no problem. You know, and so we, we have a lot to talk about, but just quickly, you know, Chase, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from and how you got into acting. Thank you so much. Well, my mom was a theater director, so I grew up in this business. I've been acting since I was five years old, and it's wonderful to still be doing the work and fantastic projects like The Baby Pact. Absolutely. So talk about, and so, you know, talk about specifically enough, was acting something you want to do your whole life? Is it something just you really were passionate about wanting to do or you had other ideas at first? You know, it's all I ever did and it's all I ever wanted to do for various reasons. But, you know, when people tell me, you know, they're thinking of getting into the business, I always go back to that. If, unless it's something deep and just biting at your soul that you have to do this, then don't. But if it's something that you just can't restrain yourself from, then do it with all your heart. And that's what I've always done. And um, yeah, it's been a good, it is a good long run, still cooking. Um, I, I, I love working with teams like the, the team on the Baby Pack. That's part of the joy of this business. Uh, Matt Berman has led a, a really fun, engaged, talented group of actors. And um, that's a huge part of the joy of this. It's more than just being out there, seeing your face on camera. Um, it's really about the family feeling and the messages that we get to spread as actors. And that's what I find in this project. That's, that's what drew me to it. All right, fantastic. Chris, next question. Wow, that, that, that's just so incredible. You know, the whole Star Trek, uh, you know, series was incredible, but Deep Space Nine was trailblazing. You know, the different types of actors they had on, the diversity involved. And you were part of that, Chase. Now, tell us about that. Uh, uh, you just being in the scene that time with the Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was an incredible experience, and it was also one that I strategized purposely as a career move. I had a friend who had been on Star Trek and I thought, wow, what an incredible legacy that must be to have that kind of body of work, of important work, of well-loved storytelling, and also that fan base. And uh, that's actually how I met Matt Berman and why I'm here today. Um, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Star Trek is something that will be part of our history and our, our lives, you know, our careers, careers for the rest of our lives. And so that's a wonderful feeling. So you were talking strategizing. What were, were you trying to transition when you strategized for that opportunity? Well, you know, you can actually try to point your career in one way or another. If you want to do daytime television, you meet those casting directors. If you want to do... Uh, if you want to work for the next 30 years, you strategize Star Trek. And um, that kind of thing is, is important to keep in mind that this fan base is so lovely and passionate. They're always asking, what can I see you in next? 
we're always getting opportunities for press and the career is just able to grow. And how many actors get that? Not that many. Um, it's wonderful to be part of this legacy. Absolutely. All right, Chris, next question. Oh, no problem. And just kind of backing up, you know, you studied the uh, University of Texas Austin. Uh, tell us, uh, has what you studied there contributed all, I mean, to your career? Hey, the last part, which, what that led to my career? Oh, no, uh, just what you studied there in college at UT Austin? Uh, yes. your career. Well, I, I think I got that question. I majored in acting and that was an incredible experience because let's take the baby pack, for instance, when you're on set, you need to know your stuff in a way that a lot of people who don't have those chops can't access. It's important to have, for instance, a theater background, which most of us on the baby pack do, um, so that we can work, work quickly so that we can know, understand Matt Berman and his shorthand when he says, I, I need you to feel this more deeply, or um, right. I, I just need you to tighten this up. And that's, those, that's like a muscle that you go back to, that you rely on and you go, got it, I could do that right now. <laughs> and so, um, so working with actors such as Gail O'Grady, who's got so many chops from, you know, an incredible career on television. Uh, Connor Trenier has a wonderful television career. Haley Duff is, she's a wonderful actress and, and is such a natural, lovely presence. Um, so much love in that girl and that translates to the screen. Same uh, Heather McComb uh, and obviously Quentin Aaron. All of these actors have such uh, a skill, really. Yeah. And if I may go on, the big fact has like it has both comedy and drama in a way that really helps the story take root in our hearts. You know, exactly. when you can make someone laugh, you can make them cry. Yeah. And that's what, that's what the baby pack does. Yeah. I've interviewed uh, Quentin. He's a really great guy. Uh, yeah. And his story is amazing. And when you think about specifically enough, this, this movie, what do you think is, what do you, what do you hope that the audience gains from it? gets from it. One of Matt Berman's primary messages in this movie is that with family, the door is never really closed. And knowing Matt as I do, that's, that's an important message in his heart and in this story that drives us all to know that families are not easy, mm -hmm. but they're important. And so it's worth taking the time and the love and digging deep and taking a risk and doing everything we can to repair and to support relationships with people, with people we love. And I guess I think that re that relates to to blood family and and I also believe that that relates to found family. But what he says is, with family, the door is never closed. That's such an important thing, Chris. Uh, next question. No problem. I mean, and, and everything she's done in film, in uh, television, also in uh, you know the audio drama series, you know, Vienna. Um, you know, she, she's like I said, it's almost like humanitarian effort to bring people together to let people know, hey, uh, that, that we can have fun while we do things. Uh, comment on that, Chase. What, what do you think about that? Is that what's your theme, overarching theme? My overarching theme. Yes. I would say my overarching theme is just keep going because you can make life better. There is such a, 
you know, there's such a lot of people that have depression and anxiety and that are ready to throw in the towel in one way or another. And whether that means a, a, a permanent decision, which is just pain, awful, or whether it's a decision to just, you know, lie in bed for an extra three hours or no, get up and go, get up and, and, and make things happen. I have brought my life back from the types of struggle and challenge and, and frankly, darkness that I never thought I could. And what I want to let people know is that they can too. And really the secret to that, whether it's in your career, certainly we know this as an actor, or whether it's just in your life, that if you just keep doing the next right thing and you act with love and integrity, then your life will get better and you can do things that you never thought were possible. And I found that. And that's the sort of resilience that I think we need and this country needs um, just to, to really stay true to our own core values um, and, 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 and things will get better. Now, tell us where people can see The Baby Pact. When is it coming out? Thank you so much. It's on, uh, I'm sorry, it's available on demand and on video everywhere on June 14th. So video on demand and on demand. Uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere movies are streaming. It's very exciting to see this movie. I just want to say this movie is a follow-up to The Wedding Pact. And The Wedding Pact showed us Happily Ever After, which is a wonderful theme, of course. The Baby Pact shows us what happens when Happily Ever After doesn't quite go right, which I think is something we can all relate to. So we see this set of challenges and we see people working through them. And um, it's a wonderfully relatable movie that will make you laugh and cry. June 14th, on demand and video on demand everywhere. All right, Chris, go ahead and summarize Chase for us. Well, 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 no problem. I mean, she made some great points. You know, she talked about mental health and how important that is for us to address that as, um, you know, as Mary Chandler's like yourself, as, as, you know, as a physician, as myself. She mentioned core values. Get back to our core values, okay? And uh, and, and pretty much uh, just believe in family and uh, and work hard. So, wow. And it was just great having her here on the show today. Thanks again, Chase. Thank we appreciate working with all you, social media-wise for all the Trekkie fans of yours out there. Thank you so much. I am at Chase Masterson on Twitter and Facebook. I'm It's Chase Masterson on Instagram, and you can follow the charity that I founded, at Superhero IRL on every platform. All right. So thank you. Fair. And uh, you can find The Baby Pact at WPTheBabyPact.com. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, such yep, a, a, late may note. I say that again? It's yeah, WP... Sorry, you can find... The Baby Pact at WP2TheBabyPact.com. All right. Well, thanks again for coming by. We appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. That Wonderful was talking with you guys. Christopher Hall show here on the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone. And welcome to Doc, the Rural Doc Allen's podcast. I'm excited to welcome to the program. Rural Doc Allen Lindemann. How are you, sir? Great. And you? I'm doing fantastic. And our topic for today's podcast is going to be pit pain. What is pit pain? It's short for pitocin. Um, and it's what is a slang that doctors and nurses use. It has a particular kind of contraction, which is painful, but ineffective. Um, in other words, it spikes up 
far and then down again. And like I said, it's painful, but it doesn't do any good. A normal contraction is like a bell-shaped curve. So it's the area under the, under the um, line that does the uh, work for the um, labor. Okay, I got it. Okay, so how do we kind of decrease pit pain? What, what are some strategies? Well, you know, my favorite is um, just to avoid it completely. I like mesoprostol, which is a prostaglandin. 25 micrograms in the um, uh, vagina, and um, that's usually will produce a delivery in about 12 hours. So, and pitocin usually is just uh, measured or it, it's given or pro produced from five centimeters to complete. Uh, so that's where the pain comes from because you're giving a medication or a substance, a hormone that should be given only from five to um, complete. Oh, wow. Okay. So based on what you're saying about this, uh, are a lot of people trying to decrease pit pain altogether? Other doctors or not? Pitocin is very, very popular. And the reason it's popular is because it's rescindable. In other words, if you stop the IV pitocin, it's probably gone within three or four minutes. So that's why um, doctors and nurses like it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so what is the uh, ultimate uh, the situation is that you figured out ways to decrease pit pain or uh, decrease or altogether. I was wondering about other doctors and then especially for soon to be moms to make sure that they don't have pit pain. What should they tell a doctor? Well, there's many reasons you have unbearable pain. I just went through uh, romper and I read a bunch of stories that lady has had some actually said that the pain pit pain isn't as bad as real labor some said it was as bad as real labor and some said it was much worse than uh, natural labor so what's your recommendation well you know what I did I used mesoprostol which is cytotech that was designed as a um um, medication to um, settle your stomach. Uh, and so it's an off-label use that probably makes some um, many doctors worried because uh, we can get into a lot of trouble with off-label use. But I would have my patients come into the office in the morning about eight o'clock. We'd put them on the monitor and the charge was for an NST, so that's $125 versus $15,000 for the um, Pitocin in the hospital. So I would give them, I'd get a handle on their labor, what they were doing, and then make sure that there's no fetal distress, and then put in the uh, uh, mesoprostol. And... I'd watch them for four hours and send them home. And a lot of them would say, they'd call me about six o'clock and said, I'm coming in after I finished supper. So, and most of them delivered between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. 
Okay. So is this your method a little different than a lot of other doctors or are they all you're seeing based on the whole discussion about C-section versus natural birth? Um, yes. Many doctors wouldn't do what I'm doing, but I, I have always been out of the box um, thinking. Uh, the nice thing about the prostaglandin is that it gives you a natural prodrome. The prodrome is the first part of labor where you feel the backache and um, probably some uh, abdominal cramps. Okay. And so the best place to go for all this great information, especially and check out other podcasts is go to where? I would say uh, ruraldocallen.com. All right. Well, fantastic, Rural Doc. It was great information again, and I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. That was the Rural Doc Allen podcast. Take care, guys. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and we're, I'm really excited about our guest today, but I first want to welcome my special co-host, Dr. Cheryl White. Uh, under, uh, she's the author of Underground Angel. How are you, Dr. Cheryl? And I know you're excited about our guest today. I am excited. I'm glad to be here. I can't wait to visit with Dr. Bentley. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Chuck Bentley. He's the CEO of Crown Financial, and he wrote a book called Economic Evidence for God. Uh, Dr. Bentley, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Neil. And it's nice to meet you and you, Dr. White. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So we'll just start out by kicking off the first question. Dr. Cheryl, go ahead. Yeah, first, thank you so much. And you can call me Cheryl. That's fine. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, why did you write this book? Your book, The um, Economic Evidence for God. That's just a fascinating topic. Well, first of all, I had a personal encounter with God through economics. Uh, in 1999, I uh, became a student of the Bible and began to realize that God's principles were radically different than the ones that I was living by. Mm -hmm. And although my finances were, were going fine, I really felt like I was in the wrong for doing things the way that I had been taught to do them with money. I, I really was on the vanity program, uh, trying to accumulate more of the world and do everything in a selfish manner. And I, I was challenged to apply God's word to my own uh, financial choices, which I did. And that led me not only to a better marriage, better financial outcomes, but also a deeper relationship with the Lord. And as I began to travel and teach these things to other people, I realized that those same principles that worked for me actually worked for nations. And so I wanted to write a book about it so people could begin to see that God is present in our daily financial transactions and in the national economic decisions that we make. So, so having that awakening, what, how did you change the way you looked at financial finances and stuff? Neil, I would say the first big change is I began to see myself as a steward of the resources that I had as opposed to an owner. If I'm the owner, then I have the ultimate control and decision over what happens to those resources. And I felt like the owner. I'd worked hard for them. I would uh, you know, felt like they were a reward for my hard work. And uh, I felt like you score by how much of them accumulated. It had been my methodology for my whole life. When I realized that 
uh, I really didn't own anything, that God owns everything, and I temporarily manage his resources on his behalf, then I was able to lose that sense of materialism that had controlled my whole life. And it enabled me to become far more generous. And so I would say the two biggest outcomes is the relief from the pressure of materialism and also experiencing the joy of giving more uh, liberally and more frequently. Yeah, that is just wonderful. Um, you know, I want to say quickly, when I was in high school, I used to listen to Dr. Larry Ruquette on the radio a lot. <laughs> Our family really um, enjoyed listening to him. And I was so excited to know that Crown Financial, which you're the CEO of, is, is uh, inherited that legacy, right? And um, so that's just really special to me as I was doing a little research about, about you. Um, but could you um, tell us a little bit, for people who don't understand, what is inflation? Uh, some people just, we know higher prices, but is that what it really is? Is that what inflation is all about? Well, inflation means there's more money than there are goods to spend the money on. And so when there's a scarcity of things to purchase and more money chasing those products, then you see prices rise. Uh, that's, a, that's just standard classical economics. We're seeing that across the board. We've had a supply chain interruption. So now for the first time in my entire life, the price of used cars have been increasing, not decreasing. Uh, that's because there's a shortage of new cars. With the chip shortage, the new cars aren't uh, being able to be produced fast enough for the demand. Therefore, used cars are taking their place. So inflation is simply a phenomenon when there's more money than there are goods to purchase. I think it's partly due to the disruption in our supply chain, but also due to both physical and, and monetary policy. Our government is printing excessive amounts of money. Uh, they're spending excessive amounts of money. And so when you have those two things combined, a supply chain disruption and poor, weak stewardship over physical and monetary policy, you can't expect anything other than inflation. And, and that inflation really makes it difficult for the average person to, to survive, right? With inflation, inflation really kind of, especially look at the gas prices for people that are not increasing their wealth, not increasing their income. It's very tough for them because they have a certain budget and now they can't live to it because it's so much more expensive with all the things increasing in price. Well, no doubt about it, Neil. It's very painful. You know, we started out talking about pain at the pump when inflation began because you saw the gas prices start to steadily rise, particularly due to the war in the Ukraine. We're in a perfect storm right now. But we all have pain at the pump. Not only does it mean how much it costs to fill up my car, but that means the delivery of products and, and goods and groceries all get more expensive and buying a plane ticket gets more expensive. Everything is impacted by the price of oil, not just uh, what we pay to put it in our car. Very good point. Yeah, I think you kind of answered this question already, but you know, the why, the why it happens, I feel like you kind of, is there anything about that that you'd like to address? Um, I mean, you kind of gave us a pretty good rundown on that. Um, no. Well, Dr. White, I actually don't believe that inflation is necessary. I believe it's generally a product of bad governance. 
when our government does not live within its means, uh, that they do not uh, control their own uh, expenditures, they create massive amount of debts, and then they print money to cover over a problem, that's a formula for a disaster. I call it riding the back of a tiger. It's exciting while you're doing it, but it's a very hard exit. It's difficult to stop printing money and to start living within our means. It's something our government hasn't done for more than 40 years. Uh, and it cannot continue. Otherwise, there's just going to be more and more pain. Yeah, definitely. More and more pain and uh, it's not going to, the survival will not happen. What, what are your recommendations to change some of those things? What well, on a basic, yeah, on a basic level, Neil, just on a personal level, I think if you're seeing inflation rate of eight to 10 percent, most of us need to adjust our budget by eight to 10 percent, meaning we need to ratchet down our outgo so that we can adjust to the cost of gasoline or the cost of groceries. And that means we usually have to manage our variable expenses, maybe our our eating out, our travel, our miscellaneous things that we've normally done. Uh, subscription services are plunging right now. People are getting off of Netflix and other subscription-based services because of inflation. They're looking for margin in their finances. So uh, on a personal level, you have to make the adjustments in order to uh, be, be able to ride the wave of this. Secondly, uh, I tell people all the time, pivot your investments into those areas where you're experiencing the pain. If you're paying more for gasoline, obviously if petroleum companies that are publicly traded, those are gonna go up in value. Yeah. So move your investments into the things that appreciate during inflation. And that's one of the best ways to offset the cost of inflation is to be mindful of where your investments are so that you can benefit actually from it. Yeah, that's makes so much sense, uh, <laughs> but we need people like you to help us think this through, I think. Um, um, I know that, I, I think most people realize that we are experiencing inflation. Um, how, maybe others don't, but how do we recognize it other than just being gouged with high prices? Is that, is that really how we recognize inflation? Well, I think we see it in a number of ways. You know, one of the hidden forms of inflation is the decrease in the amount of product that you get when you buy it. Mm -hmm. I like to buy these little protein bars. I, I bought them for years. And I noticed actually just today before the interview that there is one third less product in that wrapper than <laughs> normal. It is oh not full anymore. And so instead of raising their price, they've decreased the amount of product in there. Even in deodorant, you can't see inside a roll-on deodorant or something. They're shrinking the amount of, of product that they're selling to you. And I call that hidden inflation. Uh, and that's happening everywhere. If you just measure it by amount of groceries you can put in one grocery bag, it's definitely getting fewer and fewer products that you can take home with you uh, because we're seeing the devastation of inflation, which I believe uh, wipes out the benefit of all of those who've been good savers through the year. You know, you're losing the purchasing power of your money day after day after day. No, 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 no doubt, no doubt about it. I think that that's the the, the big thing, and it, there's nothing you can do except you. You said ride the wave through this process, 
by looking at what, again, what types of expenditures and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and so what else did you, uh, what else, what are we gonna learn from reading your book? Tell us about that. Well, a couple of things in my book that I think are very important for people to know is there's a lot of doomsayers out there who believe that the world's gonna run out of resources. In fact, they so ardently believe that lie that they recommend you stop having children. There's a professor at Johns Hopkins University who's saying it's immoral to have more children because it's just gonna cause other people to starve. But when you look at the data, that premise is absolutely wrong. In fact, it, nobody should ever believe a doomsayer that we're going to run out of resources because of overpopulation. I'm actually in the camp with Elon Musk who recently said that underpopulation is a bigger threat to society than overpopulation. And here's why, and what I wrote about in the book, Neil, is that most doomsayers see man as a consumer, a greedy consumer of the world's natural resources. And so the more of us that are on the earth, the more uh, products are consumed, and therefore there's not enough to go around. The, the theology of scarcity. Well, first of all, God said he's the God of abundance, and he created man not simply to be a consumer, but to also work and produce. And economic history shows that as population has increased, so has the supply of resources. Man is a producer. And when we faithfully work, we outproduce what we can personally consume by a large margin. And therefore, we're able to share, we're able to live with abundance and comfort. You know, the American population has soared since the 1800s. And we've gone from 5 million people to the, from the original colonies to now over 380 million people. But we are not going hungry. Generally, we are having an opposite problem of uh, oversupply and overeating and too many calories. And so uh, I write about the fact that God built into us the privilege of being a consumer. I also write about the creativity of mankind. He allowed man to be an innovator and to come up with new ideas and new products. People don't even realize that Tesla, the car that is named in his honor, but the original uh, scientist was inspired by God to invent the electric motor, to invent radio, to invent the MRI machine, the early insights into things that absolutely changed the world. And he gave credit to God Almighty for those world-changing economic innovations. Uh, you look at history and the economic outcomes tell us that the principles of God are true and reliable and demonstrate his goodness in our everyday lives and, and how we experience life. Uh, any other, uh, some other questions you have for uh, Dr. Bentley, Dr. Shaw? That's beautiful. I, I think the thing that um, keeps crossing my mind is how are, can we be like faithful stewards of what God has given us and yet have the balance of, you know, um, not consuming too much. I mean, I, maybe we don't consume too much, but I, I think um, maybe we do. <laughs> you know, how do we find that balance between the two? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. There's a lot of guilt for prosperity. And there's even a theology out there that wealthy people are evil, that they must be greedy, they must be selfish, they must, there must be something wrong with their motives to have accumulated wealth. 
the scripture doesn't teach that at all. It certainly condemns greed and selfishness and, uh, and coveting, but it does not condemn wealth. And so the Lord enables us to produce. We're rewarded by our hard work. And the scripture says our highest priority with money is to be a giver. And when we give, we, uh, we share God's blessing, particularly with those who are unable to work. And there are categories of people who are disconnected from the ability to be in the economy, whether they're sick, they've been incarcerated, or they've been uh, orphaned. Those people need charitable help. And when we supply that need, we demonstrate the kindness of God to them. And the Bible also teaches us that after we give, we're to be savers. And so saving is a way to minimize your fear of the future. It's a way to minimize your fear of giving. And I like to say the biblical message to faithful stewards is to give first and to save second. We honor the Lord with the first of all of our income. We make him first and we give and share his goodness to, to the world. And then we save for the unknown future. And that demonstrates God's wisdom. And I think for me, I never feel bad for someone who's created wealth. I feel like they need to understand their responsibility. Too much has been given, too much is required. And they're required to be very faithful with what God has entrusted to them. Oh, wow. And I think that the powerful thing about it is that without having that order in your finances, your life is in turmoil. And lots of research has shown you know, people that don't have lots of money have not managed their resources well or going through a lot more problems and difficulties. You know, they don't want to say that specifically some people, but the truth is money can really give you the resources to a good life. Well, there's no doubt about it uh, that money is a source of comfort. It, it provides the options and the margin to do many things. I like to say it this way, Neil, that money is either an accelerator to you fulfilling God's purpose for your life, or it's an inhibitor. And the way the scripture teaches it, it should never inhibit us from doing what God wants to do with us. Some people say that good stewardship is ordering your finances in such a way that you can spend whatever you want. I don't think that's the real definition. The, what the Bible teaches that you order your finances in such a way that God can spend you however he wants to spend you. And that means money doesn't have a hold of your heart. It's not holding you down due to excessive debt and uh, problems and challenges with money. You literally experience the freedom that God wants us to have, that we are literally free to do whatever he wants to do with us. Uh, Dr. Shaw, another question for Dr. Bentley. Well, I guess I'm thinking of the here and now and, and the struggles we're having today with inflation. Um, what And you kind of gave us some great ideas of what we can do. Do you believe it can be stopped? Can we stop this inflation happening today? Well, you know, Dr. White, I can't stop it. Uh, I, <laughs> wish I, I wish I could. Uh, I, I wish I could too. <laughs> I think the government can stop it. Uh, and it appears that they're trying to do that right now in what's called a soft landing. By raising interest rates, they're attempting to slow down uh, the economy so that a correction can take place, so the market will correct, 
uh, the oversupply of funds will correct, all of those things they're attempting to do. But it is, uh, it's like, someone said, it's like attempting brain surgery in the back of a car on a real bumpy road. It is dangerous and risky right now. And so I think we all need to be prepared for a recession, uh, meaning a pullback in economic growth, a pullback in the market values, uh, because I, it looks like that's what it's going to take to put the brakes on inflation. I, I'm not saying that that's all bad news. Uh, inflation can, I mean, a, a recession could be a good time. I tell people all the time, when there's a recession, the stock market puts some of the best companies in the world on sale. You just need to be prepared to buy them while they're on sale. All right. Where can we purchase the book and learn more about you? Where's the best place we can go? Well, our website is crown.org, a very, very easy web address. We have a lot of free resources to help people get on a budget, to learn to manage money differently, to think about uh, their lives from internal perspective. If you want the book, it's available at amazon.com. And I will say, Neil, that uh, for those who do pick up the book, if you would be willing to write a review, that is very, very helpful to me so that other people will be encouraged to buy it as well. Okay, fantastic. And Dr. Cheryl, where can we connect with you? Best place. Yes, um, thank you. Underground Angel is the story of um, a 19th century abolitionist, Laura Havland, and it's on sale um, at Amazon as well or on my website, undergroundangel.net. Tremendous mission that both of you guys have, and it's great to have you both on, and I appreciate you both. Thank you, Neil. Nice to meet All you, right. Dr. Blythe. Nice right. to meet you. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome him. Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? What's going on, man? Uh, in the middle of a book uh, promo and preview and uh, just doing all sorts of stuff. I've got a lot of plates I'm spinning like on the Ed Sullivan Show. You got to do that. Hey, hey, that's what life makes life interesting and easy. Uh, not easy, but fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So our guests today are best international best-selling authors, and they are writing this. Uh, they wrote the second of the series, Sons of Valor Two: Violence of Action. So I'm excited to welcome to the show Brian and Jeff, uh, best-selling authors Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. Guys, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for having us. And yep, that's our first time on the show. So we're excited. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for your service. So let's get together and see how you guys got together to write the first book. Jeffrey, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. So that's a that's a strange story. Um, so Brian and I were friends before we started co-authoring. We actually met uh, through an organization called International Thriller Writers, which most people are familiar with now. They have a meeting every year in New York. We just got back from it, in fact, uh, called Thriller Fest. And uh, we were writing independently at the time. And I'll tell you the weird thing about me is I'm not that social. So I was like sitting in a hotel room my very first time and I'm looking through the book. I'm trying to find other military guys so that I have something I can talk to. And uh, we go down to this cocktail reception and there's Brian. Now, Brian was a submarine officer. So you understand he's sitting by himself and crying and like feeling all right. Uh, and I felt Tears in my beer. Right, right. Exactly. I felt sorry for him. So I went over and. <laughs> Uh, no, but I was looking for to connect with other military folks, and we we became friends instantly. We're, we're both family guys, all about family. Our kids are the same age; like it was just a natural connection. Cool. Um, and then we didn't really start writing until uh, uh, together, at least until a couple years after that. Brian, when you first thought about writing with Jeffrey, 
Was that, were you a little cons- nervous about that, having to write? I mean, I was concerned that he had stalked me at that cocktail party a little bit. So, I mean, that was kind of a red flag, but he's really talented. So I said, okay, I'll put that red flag aside because he's such a good writer. Um, and I need that, you know, to help, you know, because if he can write all the books and I can just be on these interviews, that's very, very good for my career. So that's kind of how we ended up where we are. So are you both writers now? <laughs> No, we, we both write. It is a shared collaboration thing. And, and uh, you know, what's really, really cool about it is when we when we met, I had written, I think I had published two books and Jeff had published three. And we were both sort of in that lull trying to figure out what is our next project going to be. And so my pitch to Jeff was, hey, I did submarines. You work with Naval Special Warfare. Why don't we do like a subs and seals sort of book? And initially, I think, you know, his reservation or maybe his concern was, hey, how do you collaborate on a novel? This is something like, you know, you just do by yourself. Writers write by themselves. But um, I think when we just started working on it, we realized, hey, you know, all the values that we had from our military service, which is collaboration, teamwork, mission before self, you know, these things are very real. It's the reason that these high-functioning teams can get out there and do what seem like impossible impossible missions. Uh, We just applied that to our writing partnership. Yeah. So who's what gifts do you both bring to the table as far as writing goes? Because, you know, I'm a writer and some people are really good at just putting it down, you know, like a Mozart first time. Others, man, they got to edit, re-edit, re-edit. So what's going on? Between yeah, you? We're, the, we're those blue collar writers, you know, that we just got to pound it out and do the work. Um, and there's no question that, you know, each of us bring different strengths and weaknesses to the table. But what's interesting at this point is, you know, I, the things that were my weaknesses have I've gotten better at. And I think Brian uh, also by working together, we've learned from each other. And so now it's this weird synergy. We kind of joke that we like have this one brain. Like I, there are times I'm not making this up. I'll call up Brian. I'll say, dude, I have the perfect solution to the climax. Here's what he goes. Wait, wait, wait. What about this? And it's exactly what I was going to say. So at this point, I think, you know, we probably balance each other perfectly. Um, yeah. And we have this weird method where we write simultaneously, which yeah. is another whole thing. But um, so I, I don't know. I don't I don't think that uh, that those strengths and weaknesses play out as much anymore. I think now it's just sort of like an Andrews and Wilson novel. It starts that way and ends that way. <laughs> Yeah. Am I making that up, Brian? You agree? With no, that? no, no. I mean, it sounds like something that we just say on an interview, but it's how we get so many books done. If we, if, <laughs> if that method didn't work, uh, we wouldn't be on this show. We, we wouldn't have time. We'd just be writing, you know, nonstop. So it really is sort of that division of labor. I think um, in our case, you know, the old, you know, the old saying, you know, one and one is greater than two. That's, that's very much true for us. We have a synergy so there's this force multiplier effect when we when we get working together, because I think what happens to a lot of writers and we sort of feel sorry for everybody who has to write by themselves now. Sorry, Dave. Yeah. But um, we feel sorry for you because, you know, when you get writer's block, who do you call? You know, we're in the project together. So we're both up to speed and we never get stuck. You know, so the minute that one of us is like starting to slow down or lose momentum or get confused about where we should go, the other guy's just a phone call away. And that's, that's well, thank, I'm not really alone. I've got a very good friend who's a New York Times bestselling author, and she helps a lot. Good, good. It's nice to have a buddy to call, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, when you think about it, Jeffrey, did you think the first book would be as the success it was? Especially you guys both wrote books other before that. 
Yeah, well, as as you heard from Brian, he's uh, soft soft playing it a little bit. I was a little reticent. I actually was completely against it. Just <laughs> and again, not because of any you know him or me. It's just like I didn't see how it would work. So um, I think I went into it with low expectations for what we could produce. But I will tell you that within a week, right, Brian, like a week or two weeks, it was so exciting and fun. It was the most fun project we'd ever. The first time you and Dave, you get this like you sit it down, you walk away, you come back, you read it. You're like, damn, that's really good. Who wrote that? Right. <laughs> and um, I think we knew when we did our first pass at the end, I think we knew we had something pretty special. Yeah. Um, just because of the military, the gritty realism that we were able to put into it. You know, we we pride ourselves that we write books that honor the people we served with. And, and what we mean by that is if they read it, they wouldn't be pissed right they would read it and go yeah that's exactly right and we focus on character we focus on the relationships and the toll that this type of uh, service has on people um and so i think that's something we were able to do together even better than individually so i think the first pass we knew we had something pretty special and i assume it's all honest there's no fluff in there no who, writers who put in fluff <laughs> what is that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of are excited uh, about the industry in general because, you know, the, the, the guys that were the, the titans or sort of the iconic authors, you know, your Tom Clancy, your Robert Ludlum, these guys that trailblazed our particular industry, they were fans and advocates of the military, but they, they were not serving. You know, Tom Clancy was given access to ride on submarines and, and, and you know, got to meet with the, the CO and the Cobb and the sonar supervisors and officer decks. And he got, you know, unfettered access, but I lived that, you know, like I actually did those things. And so now, you know, like Jeff's a veteran, Don Bentley, who's writing the Clancy series, Josh Hood, um, these guys are great uh, authors, but they're also veterans. So we're bringing sort of a different level of authenticity, I think, to the genre uh, than, than it's ever had before. Now, Jeffrey, tell us a little about Sons of Valor too, without giving them yeah, Sons of Valor 2 is really fun for us because it's actually um, our first try at a spinoff, a shared universe kind of series. You know, the, the tier one series, to understand Sons of Valor, you got to understand that series. The, the premise of that series is that the entire JSOC SEAL team gets wiped out because during an ambush because of leaked and faulty intelligence. And the only survivor, our, our John Dempsey, is given a new identity, buried with his teammates, and joins a task force to hunt down the people responsible. So that's a real fun, and we've, we've gone six books now. The seventh comes out next year. But all along, we were like, you know, if that happened in real life, eventually they'd stand that SEAL team up. And we had this minor character, uh, Keith Redmond, Chunk is his, is his nickname. And he appeared in a couple of the early books, and actually a little bit in, in four of the six books. Um, as just a t SEAL team leader who augmented our task force. And we got so much fan mail about Chunk. Everybody loved Chunk. Like we, he'd be in two chapters and we get more mail than on some <laughs> of our main characters. And so when we thought about spinning off this series, we were like, we got to give it to Chunk. Like Keith Redman and his boys, that's got to be the new tier one SEAL team. And we're with Blackstone now, who we absolutely love. And they gave us just, you know, full support. They're like, we trust you, do it how you want. And so we spun this series off. It's all JSOC tier one level SEAL team action. Uh, but what's fun about this series to me is that it's nouveau. And what I mean by that is, you know, for 20 years, we had a very asymmetric battle in real life. 
you know, we're fighting goat herders in the, that are in the Taliban running around with AK-47s, but that's not true anymore. The new generation of terrorists are much more sophisticated. They're educated, they're multilingual, they're tech savvy. And so some of that asymmetry is disappearing in our world now. And on the good guy side, we have a new generation of, of SEALs and, and other operators who some weren't even born at 9-11, which is impossible almost for me to fathom as an old guy. And so what does that look like? What does this new generation of counterterrorism look like? And we were able to pull those threads through. It was so much fun. In case you can't tell, it was so much fun. <laughs> how, much is, how much is fiction and how much is nonfiction in your stories? I mean, I think what we try to do is, is war game out, you know, what's going to or what could happen, you know. That's what's exciting for authors is that what if question, you know, what if this happened? And like Jeff mentioned, you know, with the asymmetric battlefield, one of the, the important advantages that we had was drone technology. You know, the Predator drone ushered in a whole new era of battlefield tactics. And now, you know, 20 years later, you have uh, Chinese building these predator clone drones that can be sold for a tenth of the cost. So suddenly something that was unaccessible to maybe a terrorist organization, you know, because of defense industrial controls and price tag, now it's possible that these guys can get drones. And we're seeing in Ukraine the impact of those, the Turkish drone. It's a low cost drone. It's not as capable as the Predator, but look at what damage it's been able to inflict on the, the Russian forces. So once, you know, a terrorist organization starts getting their hands on the same technology that we've used to dominate the battle space, that changes the whole tactical picture. And that's kind of what we played around with in this series. I will say just to add, uh, in terms of, you know, fiction versus nonfiction, uh, it's always important for us to get this out. Because we served, uh, because I actually served in, in the JSOC community, we take OPSEC very, very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So while I think that we realistically portrayed the, the people, their relationships, their heart, their soul, their families, we fictionalize anything that could have any impact on operational security whatsoever, because we still have brothers and sisters out there on the pointy tip of the spear. And so um, a lot of the tactics, a lot of the, even the weapon systems are highly fictionalized. We don't write about anything that is an open source material, but the geopolitics, like Brian said, that's the fun stuff, right? That's the, that's a writer stuff. What if every story starts with that? Um, and so we've, we've been able to keep ourselves informed. We both read a lot about defense issues, geopolitical issues, uh, and that sort of informs our writer what if thing. All right. So Dave has a question that he asks every guest. Go ahead, Dave, with your question. Well, I'm a caregiver. You know, 25 years ago, my wife had this headache that just wouldn't go away. We were going to see a doctor, but, you know, who wants to go to a doctor? But it turned into a stroke, lost her speech, became paralyzed one side. After a couple of years of grieving, we re reinvented ourselves. She still can't talk or walk but she can communicate non-verbally through Pictionary charades and she has a power chair. We now travel around the world, speak and uh, on television. We're just helping caregivers stay alive because 30% of them die from the, you know, the stress and many more become hospitalized and need a caregiver of their own. Have you thought about uh, caring or have you already done this for maybe one of your relatives? Does, is it on your mind? Uh, all caregivers used to be normal people like you and I, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're a caregiver. Yeah. So that's a, that's something that's a little more personal for me now, because I've got someone in my family that is, um, that is 
moving in that direction, uh, which is very, very stressful on our family. And you have to, you know, what a shame we wait so long to ask the question, hey, what will we do? You know, talk to your siblings, who's going to be responsible and that sort of thing. Nobody seems very good these days at, at formulating a plan. In our case, we've got something that's a little bit more slow and, and insidious. And so um, we have the opportunity to do that. But it's definitely something that's on the mind in my family uh, a lot these days. Um, and, got, you know, God bless you. That's that's amazing. Your story is so amazing. That's the, the end of the story that you guys are traveling. You're doing things that you don't you, you didn't let it define you. You didn't let it define her. You were able to adapt and overcome. That's the military mindset. Right. So yeah. that's very inspirational. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, I, I, I think about this too. Uh, my, my wife and I, our parents are getting older and they're at that age where you have to start thinking about, you know, what, what, you know maybe they can't support themselves and live on their own anymore. We built this house. Uh, for, fortunately, we were able to do it. You know, we built a house that has an extra bedroom on the first floor. We built it ADA compliant. It's zero entry on the ground floor. So if we needed to bring a wheelchair in and out, we could. Because uh, we just didn't like the idea of sending a parent off to a facility to be alone and, and have somebody else take care of it. I mean, like you said, I, I think when you look back at the history of what it is to be humans uh, and be good humans, it's that we take care of, we take care of our own and, and our family unit is the core of that. So, you know, we've made plans uh, for, for that. And um, it hasn't happened yet, but I, I think, like Jeff said, you know, I'm at the age where, where we're, we're seeing that could happen in the next few years. Awesome. All right. Best place we can find information on both of you guys and purchase a book. Where can we go? Yeah, you get our books are available everywhere. Uh, the best way to, to follow what's coming. And it's hard to do because we do three or four books a year right now for the next few years. We've got uh -huh. several series simultaneously in progress. And now we've got some TV deals uh, in pre-production and a film deal. So the easiest thing to do is go to andrews-wilson.com, www.andrews-wilson.com. Everything about all our projects, sign up for the newsletter. That way when a new thing pops up, we can keep you in the loop. I will say a lot of people spam you with their newsletters. We don't do that. If, if it's coming to you in your inbox, it's because there's something to say. We don't, we, don't, we don't sell advertising space or anything like that. So uh, that's the easiest way to get us. So the TV deals, you can't say anything yet, but they're coming. I know it's so painful. It's killing us. You have no idea. Yes, we actually have signed uh, several deals. We actually have four deals already signed, uh, but we have to, we don't want to get ahead of the producers and we want them to be allowed to make, make those announcements, but they'll be coming out very, but it's, it's been a, it's been a very cool couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it has. Well, congrats. That's and fantastic. when you become caregivers, make sure you go to caregiverdave.com, help you, uh, survive instead of uh well thrive instead of survive caregiving thank you thank right. you and let us know how we can support that and promote it please all right appreciate it thank you guys all right that was the caregiver dave celebrity segment guys take care